give you the reading of God's holy word. Second Chronicles chapter 16, we're going to start at verse 7 and end at verse uh, 10. It says, At that time Hanani the seer came to the king of Asa, the king of Judah, and said to him, uh, Because you relied on the king of Syria and did not rely on the Lord your God, the army of the king of Syria has escaped you. Were not the Ethiopians and the Libyans a huge army with very many chariots and horsemen? Yet because you relied on the Lord... He gave them into your hand, for the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to give strong support uh, to those whose heart is blameless toward him. You have done foolishly in this, for from now on you will have wars. Then Asa was angry with the seer and put him in the stocks in prison, for he was in a rage with him because of this. And Asa inflicted cruelties upon some of the people at the same time. The sense of reading of God's word. Well, our sermon text this morning, we're going to look mainly at verse 9, but we'll talk about the context around it just for the sake of understanding it better. Uh, but our sermon text in verse 9 this morning is uh, one of those great and precious promises found in God's word for his redeemed people. And what it is, it's a reminder of and a promise of God's providential care for his people, especially in time of difficulty or or trial. For here, what does it say in verse 9? It says, The eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth. And what, and what is the purpose of that running to and fro? To give strong support to those whose heart is blameless toward him. Now, in, strangely enough, as you probably picked up as I was reading the, the surrounding context there, this great promise of God, it came in the context of a rebuke. You know, if, if you were to take this verse by itself, which we often kind of do, in isolation from its context, you'd probably be surprised to see uh, the context in which it actually came, that it was God was rebuking Asa, who was the king of Judah at the time, even in reminding him of this promise. For Asa, you might know, started out very well. Early in his reign, he, he reigned for something around four decades Early in his his reign, he started out well. He acted boldly in faith in the name of the Lord. And in the early days of his reign in Judah, uh, he was good. Later on, as we're going to see in our text, he faltered in his faith. He relied on alliances with foreign nations, foreign kings who served false gods, rather than continuing to rely upon the Lord as he had done previously. Even as the Lord showed himself faithful in the past, Asa seems to have lost sight of that and relied on Syria instead later on in his reign. Now Asa, you know, if you read the the books of of Kings and Chronicles, you know, in in a lot of ways it'll give a brief history, which sometimes spans, like in this case, 40 years in just a few chapters. And sometimes it'll say this king did what was right in the sight of the Lord, and he followed the footsteps of the faith of David. Other times it'll say this king did wickedly, like like Jeroboam did or, or whatnot. And so it, it gives you the in, in, a, in a brief uh, statement a, a thumbs up or a thumbs down in some ways upon the faith and and actions of these kings. But uh, Asa was a good king in many ways. First Chronicles fourteen two says this: Asa did what was good and right in the eyes of the Lord his God. And what what did he do? He enacted uh, many religious reforms in Judah. He torn down he tore down foreign altars and idols. He commanded Judah, it says in verse 4 of chapter 14, commanded Judah to seek the Lord, the God of their fathers, and to keep the law and the commandments. He he wasn't just ruling 
to keep the roads paved, so to speak. He was trying to make the people follow the Lord faithfully, and he took an interest, an active interest in how their worship was done, that it might be done according to the will and word of God. So he clearly tried to lead the people of Judah in the ways of the Lord, and the Lord did what? The Lord blessed him for it. The Lord blessed him and blessed the people of Judah because of it. For, for a good bit of his time, the land was free from war, and he prospered the land and the king. Now, in Second Chronicles 14, 9 through 15, we read of, of, an, of an earlier invasion that was coming upon the land of Judah. The king of Ethiopia went out to attack Judah. Verse 9 says that he had an army of a million men. That's a big army now. If, if, if you were to, to hear a news report of, a, of an army of a million men gathering on our border, you'd be right to be very concerned. That's a large army, and it says they had 300 chariots. That was their artillery of the, of the day. Now, if you read that chapter, Second Chronicles 14, you'll find out that that was almost twice as big as the armies of Judah and Benjamin. That same chapter totals their army as 580,000 men. So an army twice as big as yours that's a bad thing. That's, that's something to worry about. That's something that, that would cause fear in, in, in any of us. And what did King Asa do back then when that happened? When an army of a million was threatening Judah and Benjamin, what did he, what did he do? He cried out to the Lord. Second Chronicles 4.11 says, Asa cried out to the Lord his God. Notice the way it, it describes it. He didn't just pray, he cried out. He didn't just cry out to God, he cried out to whom? To the Lord, his God, the God whom he believed in. And this is what he said. O Lord, there is none like you to help between the mighty and the weak. Help us, O Lord, our God, for we rely on you, and in your name we have come against this multitude, O Lord. You are our God, let not man prevail against you. Now, in this case, he talks about the mighty and the weak. Who was the weak? Judah and Benjamin. Who was the mighty? Ethiopia. The one. In other words, who was humanly speaking? Who was going to win this war? If things, if God had nothing to do with it, they weren't going to win. The you know, we talk about the odds being stacked against them. Well, the odds were stacked against them. He had no human reason to believe that they could they could withstand this attack. And so before anything happened, he prayed, he cried out to God, uh, and he said that we rely on you, and in your name we've come against this multitude. It's a lot like this, the story of David and Goliath. David went out against this giant Goliath, and, but, but what's the difference? He went out in the name of the Lord. He didn't go in his own strength. He didn't go thinking, well, of course I've... You know, he, he, he talked big a little bit when he said, when he told King Saul that, you know, he was a shepherd and he's taking care of bears and lions, let me at him. But he didn't go at him in his own strength. He, he only defeated him because the Lord was with him. And so in the past, Asa, the king of Judah, trusted in God and he relied upon him for help and deliverance. He knew, as David says in Psalm 46 1, that God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. A very present help in trouble. God was Asa's refuge and strength too. And he walked and fought by faith in his God. And, the, and what did God do? God heard and answered the prayer of Asa. Second Chronicles 14, 12 says this. 
So the Lord defeated the Ethiopians before Asa and before Judah, and the Ethiopians fled. Now, the people fought. The army of Judah and Benjamin, they fought. But who defeated the Ethiopians? It says the Lord. He did it before them in in their sight. He, He revealed that to them. The Lord defeated the Ethiopians before Asa and Judah Uh, And the Ethiopians fled. The armies of Judah and Benjamin had to fight, but God is the one who gave them the victory that they would not have had on their own. God is the one who fought for them. The Lord, the Bible says, the Lord is a warrior. And he fought for Israel and fought for Judah then. Well, then we come to our chapter in chapter 16. You know, uh, it's a very abbreviated account. You know, if Asa ruled for 40, you know, roughly 40 years, you read that in the span of three chapters. So that's that's quite the Reader's Digest version, so to speak. But we come to chapter 16, and it says, In the 36th year of the reign of Asa, something changes. Here we find another attack, similar to what we had last time. It says, Basha, verse 1, Basha, king of Israel, went up against Judah. So you have the northern kingdom of Israel attacking the southern kingdom. And that was not an uncommon thing after after Solomon died, that the two the two the tribes in the south and tribes in the north fought, but it says Basha, king of Israel, went up against Judah. Uh, but what did Asa do this time? Did he pray? Did he cry out to God for deliverance? No. It says he made an alliance with Syria. He made an alliance with Syria, a foreign nation who worshipped false gods. In fact, in verse three, it says that Asa even talks about a covenant. Between him and between Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria, a covenant. And we, we, we read that and we think, oh, it's just a treaty. I mean, it's more than that. A covenant is something you make before the Lord. Well, that did not please God. And he did worse than that. It says that he took silver and gold to pay the king of Syria, not just from his own house, but verse 2 says he took silver and gold from the treasures of the house of the Lord. He took God's money to pay off a foreign pagan king for protection rather than seeking God. He sent it to the king of Syria as a payment, asking him to break his alliance with Israel. And so Syria did as Asa requested when they were paid, and their armies attacked Israel so that Israel was too preoccupied to continue their fight against Judah. So, you know, the first thing you see is it kind of worked. His plan bore fruit, right? And not, it's not going to be good fruit, but he, the Syrians attacked Israel, and Israel left off their attack on Judah. So his plan worked, but it displeased the Lord. Look at Second Chronicles 7, uh, 16, verses 7 through 9. It says, At that time, Hanani, the seer, the prophet, came to Asa, king of Judah, and said to him, Because you relied on the king of Syria... And did not rely on the Lord your God, the army of the king of Syria has escaped you. In other words, God was going to give them victory not just over Israel. He was going to give them victory over Syria if he had just trusted him. Because Syria was in league with, with Israel. He says, yet because you relied on the Lord, oh, he says, he says, sorry, he says, were not the Ethiopians and the Libyans, which we read about earlier, a huge army with very many chariots and horsemen, yet because you relied on the Lord, he gave them into your hand. And then he says, For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth 
to give strong support to those whose heart is blameless toward him. And then he says, you have done foolishly in this, for from now on you will have wars. In other words, what he thought he was doing was escaping a war. He used the the wisdom of the world. He leaned on his own understanding and said, I know what I'll do. If I do this, that'll take care of everything. No more wars, no more battles. We'll be free and clear. And what what does God tell him through the seer? The exact opposite. Because you didn't trust in the Lord, now you're just gonna, all you're gonna know is wars from now on. This, this peace that you think you have is a false peace. It's, it's like the Neville, Neville Chamberlain, uh, peace in our time in World War II. It's the same kind of thing. You, you think you're fixing it, you're not. Because you didn't trust and rely on the Lord. Now, you know, some of you know, maybe you have memorized, uh, Proverbs 3 verses, uh, verse 5. Is it trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and God will make your path straight. Uh, well, that, that word lean is the same word that you've, you see in our text here that's translated rely upon. So he's saying, you know, the, 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 the writer of Proverbs says lean, you know, trust in God, trust in the Lord, lean not. You know, like I lean on the pulpit sometimes if I'm feeling shaky. You know, lean not on your own understanding. He's saying, uh, you know, you leaned on the king of Syria. Instead of leaning on the Lord your God. And when you leaned on the Lord your God before, God rescued you. In other words, don't you remember what God did? You know, very often I think we, we are tempted by the same things. You know, these, these accounts in the Old Testament and the New, they're given for our benefit, the Bible says. We might learn from their examples both for good and for bad. And I think here he is, is being rebuked and we are to take that to heart and say, you know, past faith, Past faithfulness to God and relying upon Him does not guarantee that in the future you'll do the same. We, we don't get to, to do something for God and then coast on the merits of that in some regard. We have to learn the lessons of God's past providences and care in our life and, and let those things teach us to continue to trust in God even when it doesn't seem like the thing to do. You know, Asa was supposed to rely on the Lord just like he had done previously. And if he had done so this time, rather than relying on the king of Syria, God would have given Syria into his hand, as well as rescuing him from the army of Israel. But because he failed to do so, the result was more wars, endless wars, and not the peace that he thought he was getting by following the wisdom of the world. Now, here the seer, the prophet, uh, tells Asa and us of one who really sees You know, the seer sees things that God reveals to him to tell his message. But God is the one, the Lord is the one who really sees all. In fact, the lesson that we are to learn from God's deliverance of Judah from the great armies of the Ethiopians is the fact that of what we see in verse 9, our main part of our text, is because Asa relied upon the Lord his God that God gave them into his hand because God sees, God watches and why was it? Why, why was it that when Asa relied upon the Lord, his God, when Ethiopia was, was threatening, why was it that God delivered him? It's because the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to do what? To give strong support to those whose heart is blameless toward him. In other words, God in his providence and his care for us is always, so to speak, on the lookout. He's on the lookout for those who will rely upon him in all their trials and difficulties. And he's on the lookout in, other, in, in order that he might show himself strong 
on our behalf. And so I want to unpack verse 9 one little bit at a time briefly this morning. Uh, and the first thing we see in this text is the promise of God's providence towards his people in Christ. And the first thing there is the eyes of the Lord. The eyes of the Lord. And what do they do? What do God's eyes do? They run to and fro throughout the whole earth. Now, you might have heard of uh, the great Puritan theologian Stephen Charnock. Uh, he's best known for his magnum opus. Uh, it's called The Existence and Attributes of God. It's a book about as thick as two phone books in some ways. Now, he has a collected set of his works, and the first thing in that book of his is, is called A Discourse of Divine Providence. Now, that little discourse, so-called, is a hundred over a 100 pages long, and it's essentially a detailed exposition of our text, of verse 9. That is not unusual for the Puritans to get a lot out of one verse. Uh, don't worry, I will not be. I don't have a hundred pages of a sermon here this morning. I won't test uh, test fate, test God. Uh, but think about that. He takes verse 9 and unpacks it, he probably thought quite briefly, for a hundred pages or more to show what the Bible talk, says and teaches us about God's providential care for us. And he notes there in that, that discourse uh, that our text in speaking of God's eyes running to and, and fro throughout the earth, that, that that text gives us a description of God's providence as well as its end or purpose. He says verse 9 tells us, tells us what God's providence is, what it's like, and what it's for, what it is and its purpose or end. So God's eyes here and elsewhere in Scripture signify his infinite knowledge of all things, that's his omniscience, and his eyes here also signify his providence, the fact that he sustains and governs all things in his creation. Now, now that's this talk about God having eyes. Uh, theologians call that often call that an anthropomorphism. There's the there's the word of the day for your crossword puzzle. Anthropomorphism. All that means is it's a manner of speaking of God in human terms. Now, does does God have eyes? No, God does not have a body like we do, except in the Lord Jesus Christ and his incarnation. God, as God, does not have a body. He is a spirit, and those who worship him, John says, must worship him in what? In spirit and in truth. But the Bible uses human analogies and figures of speech to describe God, like his hand, his arm, his ear, his eyes, that kind of a thing. And so that's what the text is doing here. God doesn't have literal eyes, but... He's described figuratively in human terms in order to assure you and I that he most assuredly sees all things. He is aware of all things and watches over us and all things. He he sees all things, he knows all things, and he watches over all things. In fact, Hebrews 4.13 says this, And no creature, nothing God has made, no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. That's a kind of a jarring way to put it. You know, it's one thing to say that God sees all things, but to say that everything is as if, as if it were naked before God, exposed. God, There's nothing God doesn't see. There's nothing that we can hide from God. Remember Adam and Eve after the sin in the Garden of Eden? What did they do? They 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 did a double hide. They They sewed fig leaves together to cover their nakedness, and they hid. And God, you could say in some sense, kind of humored them when he walked in the garden in the cool of the day and said, Adam, where are as if God didn't know where he was. He wanted Adam to know he knew where he was. That was the reason for 
for the question. Now, if you're an unbeliever, if you're still outside of Jesus Christ this morning and still in your sins, this truth of God should trouble you, frankly. In some ways, it should be the most terrifying thing you could ever hear and ever think of or imagine that God sees everything. He sees it as if it's an open book, all your sins and transgressions of thought, word, and deed. You know, we can we can hide our transgressions and sins and wickedness from other people. Uh, in some ways, we can even hide them from ourselves. We, we don't think about them. We distract ourselves. Uh, we can hide them from ourselves by hardness of heart, or as Romans 1 talks about, the suppression of the truth, suppression of the voice of our consciences. You know, we have our consciences sometimes. Uh, in fact, in 1 Timothy, Paul talked about people's consciences being seared, kind of being cauterized with a hot iron so they, they didn't feel anything anymore. Not a good place to be. But you can't hide any of it from God. And if you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, if you're not trusting and relying upon him alone for salvation from your sin, you stand condemned at this time. John 3.18 says, Whoever believes in him, in Christ, is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he's not believed in the name of the Son of God. In other words, you know, there's an old saying, there's two kinds of people in this world, right? Uh, sometimes, I remember in my, my younger days, I used to give out those, uh, remember those Jack Chick tracks, those comic book little tracks? And they always got people's attention. I remember in, in my squadron and in my, on my ship in the Navy, even the most hardened unbelievers wanted to read them because they found them entertaining. But uh, one of the things I found fault with them at times was it seemed to portray three kinds of people. You had Christians, you had the neutral people in the middle, and then you had those who were, you know, Hitler, the ones that were for sure going to hell, servants of the devil. Well, is that what the Bible teaches? That there's this middle ground of neutral people that it could go either way? No, John, John 3.18 says no. Until you believe in Christ, you stand condemned already. There's not the condemned, the justified, and the middle who are waiting to find out. If you're not in Christ, you stand condemned already, but whoever believes in him is not condemned, but has eternal life, as John 3.16 tells us. So trusting in your own works, trusting in anything other than Jesus Christ alone is, you know, for salvation, it's kind of like Asa trusting in Syria, relying upon Syria, and what does he get? Does he get peace? No, he gets a very short-lasting false peace, and the rest of his days are spent in war. That's a lot like trying to save yourself through your own works. It just brings you a false peace and it never ends well. But if you trust in Christ alone as your Savior and Lord, in Him you will find justification. In Him you will find forgiveness for all of your sins and and real peace with God. Real peace with God. Then God's providence, His eyes running to and fro throughout the the whole earth, then God's providence no longer is a terror to you. If you're in Christ, then God's providence becomes a great source of comfort and peace and encouragement to you in all your ways and in all your days. Brothers and sisters, notice that the eyes of our God, it says, run to and fro. Remember the book of Job, where God, you know, God asks questions, not because he doesn't know things, but he asks Satan, where have you been? Been a while. And what does Satan say? I've been going to and fro through all the earth looking for someone to test. I'm paraphrasing a little bit. But he describes it as going to and fro. He's looking. Satan's on the lookout. But God God runs. His eyes run to and fro. He's far ahead of of Satan. God's eyes run to and fro. And what does that mean? It's, it's a picture of haste. It's a picture of endless activity. God is not sort of passively watching. 
You know, we sometimes passively watch things or watch over things. God isn't that way at all. God's eyes run to and fro. He's constantly on the lookout for our good. His eyes constantly run to and fro, looking for those who will trust in him that he might show himself strong on our behalf. And that what that means is, to say the least, you know, we know God's omniscient, right? You know God knows all things, but this is more than that. This is more than just God's simple omniscience, if I can say it that way. This means that God is well aware, intimately aware of your circumstances, your trials, whatever they may be. He's not unaware or unmoved by them. He stands ready and willing to show himself strong on your behalf and to glorify his name in extending his mercies toward you in your trial. Stephen Charnock also notes that the eyes of the Lord running to and fro throughout the whole earth teaches us the extent and the diligence of God's providence. The extent is what? The whole earth. There's no nook or cranny of the earth that God or the whole universe that God is ignorant of or does not watch over actively. And the idea that he's constantly looking back and forth over all of it assures us that he misses nothing. You know, it's easy for us, and most of us in this room, maybe all of us in this room, none of us, I think, have delusions of grandeur. I don't think any of us think that, you know, if, if there's a, a list of God's people he's watching out for, that we are anywhere near the top of that list. None of us, you know, King Asa was a king, at least. He's an important person. Like You might say to yourself, I'm sure that God watches after President Trump because he's the president. Or I'm sure maybe you, you think, uh, you know, God watches out for, for our pastor or maybe the pastor with 5,000 people in his church. Well, God watches over him because that's a big, that's a big deal. No, God watches over all of his people. All, if, if not a, not a sparrow can fall from, to the ground apart from his will, certainly he watches over and cares for you and I who are in Christ by faith. He's constantly looking so to speak, the, the picture, the analogy is looking back and forth, scanning over his creation, all of it. And it's not just for kings. And Jesus teaches us a very thing in Matthew 10, verses 29 to 31. He says, Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows doesn't mean that God doesn't like sparrows. It means that he likes you more. He cares about you more. But he, if his care extends to sparrows and hares, his care certainly extends to you and I and all of our difficulties and trials. And So we've got the eyes of the Lord. The second thing in our text uh, is the strength of the Lord. The strength of the Lord so much for a brief definition of God's providence. Now we want to see the, the end or the purpose of God's providence, the purpose of his eyes running to and fro throughout all the earth. Uh, what's the purpose of it? Why do God's eyes run to and fro throughout the whole earth? Uh, and it says that it is to, quote, give strong support to those whose heart is blameless toward him. It could have just said to give support, to give strong support, to show himself strong. In fact, the NASB renders it a little bit differently. The NASB says so that he might strongly support those whose heart is completely his. The King James puts it, I think, a little better when it says that it is, quote, to show himself strong, to make a show of strength, to show himself strong, to demonstrate his strength in the behalf of those whose heart is perfect toward him, to show his strength on our behalf. And so you could say that God is constantly on the lookout for his people, constantly looking for ways in which to show himself strong 
or to demonstrate his strength on our behalf in all of our difficulties, all of our trials, all of our troubles, if we will rely on him first and foremost. You know, well-meaning Christians have often said things like this. Maybe you've heard someone say this or something like it. You know, God will never send anything into your life that's too big for you. I don't know what Bible they're reading if they actually think that's true. Of course he does. You know, the Bible does say that God will never allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able uh, to endure or to withstand. And so there's some truth to it, and I guess you could say in some regard. But God absolutely gives things into our lives that are too big for us. Why? To show us they're not too big for him. To show us our need, our constant need for him. God God never sends anything into your life that's too big for him to handle, not too big for you to handle. And so when difficulties and trials come into our lives, and they certainly do, what did Jesus even say in John uh, John 16, 33, that in this world you will have tribulation, in this world you will have trouble. Nobody has to, to tell you that. We all, we all know that to be the case. Uh, but when that happens, what are we to do? Are we to seek to overcome those troubles as if we were mere men or as if we're those who are of the world? Or do we seek to overcome those trials as believers, as believers in Jesus Christ, as those who know God? There should be a difference. We should seek to approach our trials as people who know our God, that know our God is providentially caring for us and is ready, willing, and able to show himself strong on our behalf. Let us cry out to God as Asa did in his early days when the army of the Ethiopians threatened the land of Judah. Hebrews 4.16 says, Let us therefore do what? Come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Let us pray like believers and entrust ourselves and our cause to the providence and care of God. Now what will that look like? What does it look like for us today in the church to see God showing himself strong on our behalf? I can't tell you what it will look like. Does it mean that God's going to work miracles on your behalf? I can't promise that because the Bible doesn't promise that in the Word word of God. But he will show himself strong on your behalf if you trust and rely upon him rather than on your own wisdom or the wisdom of the world. It says you will obtain mercy to find grace and help in time of need. Will. And what could be better than that? Not only that, but we're promised in Philippians 4, verse 7, that the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. When we pray to him, when we make our requests known to God with thanksgiving, what does he do? He not only answers, he also guards your heart and mind with his peace. Now, sometimes God gives his people a miraculous deliverance. When you think of the book of Exodus, and the, the, the crossing of the Red Sea. They had nowhere to go, and the, the, Pharaoh, the Pharaoh's chariots were barreling down on them, and God made a way, supernaturally. Sometimes God enacts a miraculous deliverance, even after Bible times. You think of the story of Dunkirk in World War, World War II. Sometimes God does that. Sometimes God heals our diseases. Sometimes he does that and confounds both doctors and scoffers alike. Sometimes He provides for us in the most amazing and unlikely ways, whether it be our daily bread or sometimes even in abundance. Sometimes he rescues us from our trials, and other times he sustains us through our trials. But either either way, he is showing himself strong on our behalf when we trust and rely upon him. 
In all those things, he's showing himself to be strong and mighty on our behalf. And all of this is for our good and for his glory. But we have to rely upon him alone and not try to handle everything on our own. We certainly have to make sure that we aren't trying to handle everything according to the world's wisdom, as if we didn't trust God and didn't know him. The Christian should handle our difficulties and trials differently than those who don't know the Lord. Well, last but not least, all of this is promised, quote, to those whose heart is blameless toward him. Now, the word blameless there is kind of difficult to pin down the Hebrew behind it. Uh, it's, if you read different translations, you'll notice it's translated in a number of different ways. They all have something of the same kind of idea, but uh, the, the NASB, the King James says, talks about someone's heart being perfect towards God. Uh, the New American Standard says, whose heart is completely his. Uh, and now the Hebrew word behind that, the, it's from the same root that we get the word shalom or peace from. And shalom, you know, we, we everybody has a different idea of what peace means, but it does have kind of an idea of wholeness about it. And so it's not saying that if your heart is perfect towards God, sinless towards God, then he'll show himself strong. You know, if that if that was God's promise here, I don't think any of us in our right minds would take any comfort from it because none of us are perfect. We all still struggle with sins. He didn't he didn't answer Asa's prayer against Ethiopians because Asa for a time was had reached sinless perfection. It's that he was sincere in his trust in God and he relied upon God. It's as simple as that. He sought to do God's will however imperfectly he did it. And so the idea here uh, of, of the heart being completely God's or being whole is one of sincerity and wholeness instead of hypocrisy. It's a heart that relies upon God even as Asa did previously when the Ethiopians threatened Judah. And that reliance, reliance upon or trust in God will be evident in how we live. It'll be evident in sincerely, even if imperfectly, seeking to heed and do the will of God and obey his commandments. Sometimes it's precisely in the course of obeying the voice of God and his word that some of the troubles in our lives come into our, our lives in the first place. And then what does the wisdom of the world tell you to do? You better stop that. You better cool off and stop being so uh, dedicated to the Lord, but that's not what the word of God would have us to do. And when trials come our way, what do you do then? You know, are, Do you continue to trust God and obey his word? Or do you back off? God would tell us to keep on trusting him and keep on seeking to do his will in our lives. We must live by faith. What does the Bible say? The just, the righteous, the just will live by faith. We live by faith. We walk by faith, not by sight, the Bible says. And we walk by faith in God's providences and in the promise of his providence. Whatever your trials may be, and I don't know what they all are, whatever they may be, they are in some ways Really, if they're a trial at all, they're a trial of your faith. In fact, the New Testament says that, that blessed are you when those trials come your way. Why? Because the proving of your faith is worth more than gold. To know your faith is real and God-given, sometimes you only find that out when God sends a trial your way. He doesn't send it so you can prove it to him. God knows what he's doing in your life, but sometimes we don't. So we find out that our, our faith is God given and, and living and real? We find out that God really does fulfill his providence, his, his promises and his providence in our lives. That he really does make all things work together for our good. Romans 8, 28. So let us be encouraged by the examples of the saints in the Old and New Testaments. 
that are written down for us in the scriptures that we might learn from them and imitate their faith and likewise walk in faith even as they did. May God, our God, be pleased to work in us what's pleasing in his sight by his spirit and his word that we, that he might sanctify us, that you and I might grow in his grace and may we rely upon God alone in all of our trials and trust him to show himself strong on our behalf. To him be the glory in Jesus Christ forever. Amen.